0: And I think finding the weird, finding the strange in historical details is very important because it's unsettling and intriguing to readers. And when you arrive at a place where you're like, I have no idea what's going on, that's when your mind is opened to being convinced of of
1: other ideas, of other truths. Hello, and welcome back to Drafting the Past. I'm your host, Kate Carpenter, and this is a podcast about the craft of writing history. In this episode, I was delighted to talk with Dr. Erin Thompson, the Associate Professor of Fraud, Forensics, Art, Law, and Crime at John Jay College, City University of New York. Thanks for having me. Erin holds both a PhD in art history and a law degree and identifies herself as America's only professor of art crime. Her most recent book, Smashing Statues, The Rise and Fall of America's Public Monuments, came out earlier this year with Norton, and it is a fascinating look at the history, present, and future of many of America's monuments. Her first book was Possession, the Curious History of Private Collectors, and she has also written essays and op-eds for a wide variety of publications, in addition to frequently being interviewed for her expertise. We had an excellent conversation about keeping your audience interested, finding the strange details and asking questions that intrigue you, and the power of humor. I hope you enjoy listening.
0: I think the most important thing about the trajectory of my career as a writer is how completely different what I've been writing in the last few years looks like from what I started off writing Uh, in graduate school, where I spent years writing an utterly unpublishable, uninteresting dissertation that no one has ever read, uh, possibly including my advisor. Uh, And for good reason, because it (laughs) It was such an artificial construct of here is a hole in the scholarly literature um, that I think I could fill with research, but nobody needed it, nobody wanted it, and so nobody has paid attention to it since, and as it should be. Um, and I wrote it by just grinding away, spending days for months straight in the library. Researching and and writing. And it was very boring to do. And (laughs) the result is boring. And it took such a long time to produce something that nobody wanted. And by contrast, in the last um, few years, my writing has been more for the public, but produced in a really different way as well. So now it's much faster because I've realized that. It doesn't work for me just to sit down and look at my computer for 12 hours. I think of ideas when I'm doing yoga or taking walks or in a museum looking at beautiful arts or talking to my friends, including my long-suffering friends who have heard me talk through my research <laughs> way too much. And then when I sit down, uh, especially to to produce a shorter, general audience piece, uh, an essay for an online publication, it usually only takes me a day or so because I have been thinking about it uh, in, a, in a looser way for much
1: longer. What prompted that transition for you from sort of more academic, less publishable, as you put it, writing <laughs> to more, more public facing?
0: Well, I had a strange trajectory into um, my professorship. I was Writing this dissertation, which I knew was not so great, I thought, uh, I'm never going to get a job as a professor, Uh, in part because, you know, it wasn't just that I thought my dissertation wasn't great. It's that I thought, I don't really want to do this for my whole life, make up some version of the past, uh, and then fight with other people about whether my fantasy of the past is better than your fantasy of the past. Uh, So It it turned out that being a, a standard art historian or classicist wasn't that interesting to me. But I was writing about ancient Greek vases, and I got very interested in the market for these phases and for antiquities in forgeries and looting and all sorts of shenanigans in the art market. So I went to law school to study the legal regimes to prevent the looting and smuggling of antiquities. And I thought I would just be a lawyer lawyer. And I ended up getting a job in you know big solace corporate law firm uh, and then for the city of New York, which was much more fulfilling. Uh, and I had no intention of, of continuing an academic career until there was a job posted, my current job, For someone studying art and law, looking for someone with a PhD and a JD, and I sort of looked around and thought, oh, I I, I guess that's me. (laughs) So I, I had been continuing to publish some academic articles. So I managed to convince me to convince them to give me a chance, and and here I am. But I came in knowing that the things I wanted to work on now were not just some scholarly concerns that no one but, you know, a dozen people in the whole history of the world would care about. But they were. Th- I wanted my work to have an impact on what's happening today, on the marketplace, on new laws, on enforcement, on the behavior of, of buyers and sellers of antiquities. And the, the problem with wanting to change people's behavior is that you have to get people to pay attention to you. <laughs> so it became a very strategic process of trying to figure out how do I switch myself into this new track from this very scholarly, very limited, very eat your vegetables way of writing that I've been trained in to a way of writing that people who didn't already care about these issues, who hadn't already spent their entire lives caring about these issues, uh, who weren't being paid or graded on reading and writing about these issues. How do you get those people interested in something? Had you always thought of yourself as a writer? No. I I still don't know if I think of myself as a writer. It seems very strange. I get a lot of compliments and I feel very antsy about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm a good communicator rather than perhaps a, a wonderful writer, uh, which I want to say not just because I want to grovel in my own self-confidence issues, uh, but... Because I want to be a model of, uh, you don't need to think you're a fantastic writer. You don't have to have, you know, 10 novels in your drawer or a secret poetry habit to um, write powerfully and uh, engagingly. Anybody can teach themselves how to become a better writer.
1: I'd like to just ask you some of the basic questions about your writing. Let's start with when and where do you do your writing? That has changed so
0: much uh, over the years, not just in the pandemic, but when I had a kid, when I had two kids, even when I got pregnant for the first time, um, it was a whole change in how long could I be in the library? Could I bend over and get all those books from the bottom shelf, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think that there's anything constant uh, in the actual nuts and bolts of my writing, but What has constantly worked for me is the idea that I need to give my best energy to whatever is most important to me at the time. So I open up my laptop. I know I have a couple of hours of really my clearest thinking. And for years, I would waste a lot of that by responding to the emails that piled up overnight. So, if I had was really disciplined, I wouldn't even check my email, but now I'll open up my laptop, I'll read my emails, but I will not reply to them until the end of my day. I have uh, shifted my teaching into the late afternoon because I, I still have plenty of energy for that I'm energized by teaching, but the the hardest part of the task I have ahead of me, whatever writing project, et etc, I want to give my best energy earlier in the day. I even um A strange little tip here. Uh, I've changed the password to my laptop. So I have to type in (laughs) every time I open my computer something that relates to whatever I think is my current priority as a little prompting of, uh, you know, you want to answer all that bureaucratic email, but instead you're going to think, is there something I can do uh, now that will forward this project? Uh, And the other thing that's really different from how I used to write, that i I think is very important to me, is realizing that not all writing happens on the page, that uh, I'm not going to come up with my best ideas, just staring at the computer or even handwriting, that sometimes I just need to use my body and give my brain a little time to stew on something. So uh I'll usually only work for a couple of hours before
1: doing something else. How do you organize your research and your notes?
0: Yeah, I hesitate because I feel the, the I think, common urge to say, oh, I'm so disorganized. I wish I were more <laughs> organized. But, you know, I think whatever works for you. Uh, however, you're keeping all those balls of ideas and facts in the air until you can make sure they land on the page in the right way. Uh, you don't have to be sad about it not being some platonic ideal of, of organized whatever. So what I actually do most often these days is some sort of unholy hybrid between uh, digital and physical. So I will use my phone camera to take pictures of the pages of books or articles with my little fingers stuck in there in the frame to point to... Um, whatever phrase or paragraph that I think I might need in the future. And then I'll collect all of those photographs in a, a subfolder within the, the book, within the topic, within the book project. And then at a secondary phase, so first I research widely. I read a whole lot as much as I can uh, and really over-annotate, which is why I, I came up with this way of capturing quote-unquote notes uh, very broadly instead of having to transcribe everything. Then at a secondary phase when I have an idea, all right, I'm really writing this chapter on this thing. I know I need this information. I will go back and create a Word document for that book or article and copy-paste the specific lines from the photos that I think i want to use. And then only in the final phase when I'm actually writing that section of the book will I type out quotes or information, uh, which I think also has a salutary effect of making sure I don't overquote, which I'm always tempted to do. So please don't follow this advice. It is ridiculous, uh, this way <laughs> of, of doing things. But I, I will say the uh, advice I wish I had been given earlier is to think about from the very beginning stages of the project. Not just compiling information on the facts of your research that you want to write about, but compiling information that you will need to disseminate that research into the world. What I mean in particular is uh, making sure you collect images that you could use for illustrations in publications, but also the many more images you'll need if you want to give a nice illustrated PowerPoint lecture that you collect the source information for those images which isn't always expected what you're going to need, I would say that as soon as you sign a, a book contract to ask your editor, give me the, the spreadsheet that the press's legal department is going to ask for to make sure I have all of the image permissions. And you don't need to collect all of that information for every single image you're interested in, but it's good to know what's what's the universe of information you're going to need. And also, uh, one tiny thing that I did for my latest book, which I'm very happy I did, I from the very beginning had a file of acknowledgments because I was talking to so many people, not just librarians, but people on Twitter, people I was interviewing, people who connected me with people I was interviewing. So I would just throw their names into this document with a tiny little note about what they had done to help me. And I was so grateful when in the very end stages, I was, you know, proofreading the index and making sure I had all my dates right and et cetera, et cetera. I did not have the mental space to go through and reconstruct several years worth of whom I should thank for what. So I was, I was happy that I did that.
1: It sounds like then you do most of your research before you really start drafting. Is that is that right? Yes, I try to do that and
0: um, then I will write, and then I will do some fill-in research for holes that I come across in my writing process. But that said, for this book, my editor, when I gave him the, what I thought was the final manuscript, said, Ugh, could you really put in another chapter? So I ended up writing a whole new chapter. But that's still followed the same, same process of research cogitating on sort of stewing that research down into um, what I was going to write.
1: Do you do, are you an outliner? Do you um, have some sort of way of sort of setting up a sense of what you want to write before you dive in? Yeah. So I
0: always need, before I start writing anything, whether it be a chapter or um, even a, a shorter essay, a idea of where I'm starting, the first sentence, the first paragraph, and a little bullet point of structure of here is here are the ideas I'm going to talk about in whatever order. And that really actually rarely changes once I figure it out enough to start writing. I should say that the way that I come to start projects is not through having an idea of what I want to say, but having questions. Uh, So once I have an interesting or an interesting to me question about why is this thing the way it is? How could this thing be better? I, I start to research and find out information of, that can help me think about that question. I say help me think about rather than answer because I, I think that a question you can definitively answer is maybe not an interesting enough question to support a whole large project. So I try and gather information and also gather narrative stories that will help me think about that question and will help me communicate that to the readers, which I should say is, is a big change, again, from what I originally thought of even when I was starting my professorship and thinking, all right, I want to I wanna write for the general public. When I started off, I thought, all right, there's, there's narrative and then there's the intellectual content of whatever piece. And the narrative is just like a little spice you add To disguise, you know, like the spoonful of sugar to make all the intellectual argument go down, and then I realized, no, that's not enough. You can't have one entertaining anecdote for the first paragraph and then dry dust for the rest of it. So then I thought, okay, well maybe I'm um, uh, I'm translating my research into a narrative structure. Like the things that I would normally gather for an academic piece, I can just like write that in a narrative way. And it turns out that is also not true, that the things you gather when you're looking for just rational argument, it's not enough for narrative. And so at first I was a little resentful, like, ugh, I got to do all this extra research to find out, you know, what sort of shoes this person was wearing and what their hair (laughs) looked like just to make it, you know, fancy it up enough to have people read it. But it it turns out, especially in writing this most recent book, that what I realized I was actually doing was... A whole transformation of my my research and writing process that finding these details these narratives changed how I understood the underlying intellectual issues it's not a, a decoration it's a transformation in your understanding of the past and the present I
1: think what then does the revision process look like for you so
0: I'm a big believer in the idea of shitty first drafts. I have the structure that I want uh, very much nailed down. I need to make these points in this order, tell the story in this way. But I will, in my first draft, just write whatever sort of sentence to, to fit it all in there. This last book, I, I started to have carpal tunnel problems. So I was using a dictation software, which made it even messier looking. But I know it's much easier to revise when you already have something there to make something existing better than it is to just face the blank page. So as long as I get it out, then I can polish on the sentence level what I have. Uh, I know that I am not too good at spotting gaps in my narration. Or, explaining thing, or, or seeing where I have failed to explain something that a reader is going to need to understand. So that's where I really rely on editors, whether they be friends or, or professional editors who will say, you need to explain this, or you need to slow down here, or there's way too much detail about this there. Uh, and then i can I can follow those marching orders, so uh, i've I've really worked out a process of figuring out
1: these are the things I can do myself. These are the things um, that I'm gonna need some some help in spotting. So do you then have sort of a writing community that you turn to for that sort of feedback?
0: I have a a number of friends whom I really trust to comment on things, whether it's just me describing my research or asking them to read a whole draft. Uh, None of them are academics. Some of them are experienced editors uh, and journalists. I now am comfortable doing that because I'm, I'm, I'm very close with these people. They are happy to do so. But in terms of if you don't have... Journalists in your life, or, or something like that. <laughs> uh, I, I will say that at the beginning, when I was really flailing around trying to understand what it is like to write for the public instead of academic writing, uh, I hired a writing coach, which was great for me. I hate to ask for help. So, knowing, all right, I'm literally paying this person to do <laughs> this thing was very uh, useful. So That went on for, I don't know, maybe about a year. She helped me write a couple of pieces until I got to a level where I thought I am capable enough of at least producing the first draft that then an editor isn't going to laugh at when I submit it
1: to some sort of publication. Has it been a struggle to be in academia, but write much more for a public audience? No,
0: which is partially... It hasn't been a struggle because of where I am. So my college is at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and many of my colleagues are writing to change the world, uh, writing to advocate for changes in laws or different understandings of, of justices. So they look much more askance on me when I uh, do something super nerdy and classical art historian-y. Like, why would you care about, you know, what, the, the, what a kuros looks like or whatever? So there is a, a community support up for writing for the public. But also, I think wherever you are, there is an ability to at least negotiate about the what quote-unquote counts or not about your writing. Fortunately, at CUNY, the requirements for tenure have been negotiated through the union, so it's very clear uh, what things count for what. So writing pieces for the public can count as uh, service. Appearing uh, as an expert on news media also counts as service, etc., And I just finished up uh, putting together my file for promotion to full professor and took a lot of effort to explain how my latest book, although it's for a trade press, is in fact a work of original scholarship. Uh, So it shouldn't just be because it came out with one or the other that it, it doesn't count and I need to throw it away. I'm able to make an argument for how this fits within more traditional academic style. And I have gotten some pushback, especially when I'm submitting a, a book chapter or a, a scholarly article, essentially, to, this, is, this is too easy to read. Like, people <laughs> seem suspicious that it might not be rigorous enough if they can understand it. But I think, you know, that's, that's your issue, not my issue.
1: Do you have sort of an ideal reader in mind when you're writing? Sometimes I do, especially when I'm targeting
0: some particular change. Sometimes I'm writing an op-ed targeted just at members of the city council in a particular city. Sometimes I spend as much time writing an email as I do an entire article because I know I can send that email to the person I want to make a particular decision. When I'm making a more general appeal then. No, I don't think so. I'm, I'm trying to put in as many hooks as possible for people of different interests to come into a piece. So my latest book about monuments, I really want to, to be read as broadly as possible. So I tried to think of different types of people who might want to read it, people who didn't know anything about monuments, people who wanted to defend monuments and were concerned about them being taken down people who were already convinced that certain monuments needed to come down, but wanted to have more uh, arguments to to take these things down. So I wanted to make a contribution that would serve many audiences. And I think teaching, uh, as I have done for most of my career, in institutions where somebody is taking a, a gen ed class or Is not necessarily an art history uh, major has really served me because I have always, almost always, been teaching people who aren't already convinced of the value of what the class is about, and knowing how to talk about, say, the architecture of the the Parthenon, so that the engineering majors who are taking this. Art History class, uh, because it fits into their schedule, will suddenly think, "Ooh, this is interesting after all that has served me in in writing for a broader
1: audience. You alluded to different forms of writing that you do in in terms of op eds or or even emails, and I'm curious to know you know I know you write in both essay and book form. Is your process different between those two I think it's a
0: continuum, so I am very unabashedly self-confident about the weirdness of my own interests. Like I'm going (laughs) to go on vacation and look at Greek vases for 12 hours a day. And my friends and family are just like, okay, whatever. See you later. (laughs) We're not, (laughs) we're not sharing that with you, but I am utterly unable to tell on my own whether things that I think are cool or are concerning will have any resonance with anybody else. So I tweet a lot And I do so in part because I am testing what of my interests resonate with anybody else. And it is, I can never predict something. Sometimes something will get zero attention and sometimes a tweet will go viral and I never have any ability to predict which it will be because I'm always interested in everything. But this this means that Twitter has been a great uh, way for me to test out. Which, which hooks will get people interested in topics that I want to write about? So I wouldn't even say that it's like I, I test out my ideas in, in essays that make it into the book. I test out my ideas in tweets, in, in threads, <laughs> and getting that immediate feedback is really important to me. And also the, the interaction with, with people who are experts on something that you would never think you would find any sort of expert on has been incredibly valuable. It meant when I was writing my, finalizing my acknowledgements, I had to contact some people on Twitter and be like, uh, what's your real name? <laughs> if you'd like to be listed under that <laughs> versus your your Twitter handle. Like we've been talking for years about, you know, Birmingham city history minutiae, but I don't actually know your name. Okay, thank you. Uh, so sometimes I will have to get this Running start with I'll tweet about something. All right, it's got some interest. I'll I'll write an essay for some publication about it, and then that will become part of a larger project. Often uh, the tweet is enough for me to be to think, okay, this is is worthwhile doing. But um, I also like having external deadlines. So a lot of these shorter pieces I've written over the last couple of years has been because some editor sees me tweeting about something and says, would you like to turn this into an essay for my publication? Like, great. Sounds good. Uh, In fact, that happens so often about monuments that my editor had to be like, Aaron, stop. (laughs) Stop with the essays. like, save some for your book. You can't publish everything beforehand. But I sometimes ignored that actually good advice, uh, when I thought that there was something happening in the world that I, I had some crucial information for, then I would turn that into a more immediate op-ed uh, or essay. And this is another thing that's really drives my writing lately, is that I think I am talking about something not just because I find it interesting, but because I'm, I'm doing some work to provide information and background and context for an ongoing debate uh, that I think can be had better, we can have a better discussion with this information. So I want to get that information out there. And in some cases, it really felt torturous to wait until publication for uh, the book. And in other cases too, like, I just wanted to fact check. You know, i, I publish a piece of the book with what I think is my most mind-blowing discovery, that um, only a single monument of the hundreds removed since the murder of George Floyd has been irrevocably destroyed. The others are just in storage or have been relocated. I published that piece as an op-ed in the Washington Post because I I more or less couldn't believe that it was actually true. Like, I did all the research. I've tracked all the fates of the monuments. I was like, this cannot... B, we can't just be putting these all in some sort of like North American strategic racism reserve. But nobody came forward to contradict me. So I thought, all right, dang it. I got to put this in the book. but This
1: is the the actual state of affairs. That's wild. I, I have told multiple people that, that bit of information since reading the book because it blew my mind too. It's crazy. Did your approach to writing change between the first and second book? Oh, definitely.
0: The first book was more of this using narrative bits to flavor the academic. I think the first book is good for if you're already interested in the the topic or if you're interested in even the broader topic about looting or the antiquities market, et cetera. But I really wanted to write this most recent book as something that would be engaging for people who had no interest in the topic at all or, or actively disinterested in, right? It thought that the topic of what we should do with American monuments is too boring or too controversial or too depressing to think about. So I wanted to give people ways to think about this, which is something that I admire about, say, John McPhee, um, one of my, I want to say, most influential writers, which is ungrammatical and it would be an insult to the... <laughs> <laughs> the very idea of John McPhee, but McPhee is so good at taking something that is, I think, an actively boring sounding topic, uh, like the US merchant marines in his book Looking for a Ship and making it absolutely fascinating and relating it to so many different um areas. So uh I I try and be like him in figuring out what's the in into topics that seem very challenging and uninteresting.
1: To talk a little more about how Erin finds her way into a challenging topic, I asked her to talk me through a paragraph from the second chapter of her recent book, Smashing Statues. Here's the paragraph. On a January night in 1843, The sculptor Horatio Greenaw started a bonfire in the Capitol building and nearly killed the transcendentalist philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson. Greenaw had carved a statue of George Washington for the rotunda of the Capitol, but he hated the way it looked under its skylight. Washington's high forehead glared in the sunlight, but the details Greenaw had sculpted on the sides of his chair were practically invisible. The artist wanted to show his work to his friend Emerson in a more flattering light, So Greenough arranged a nighttime visit. He placed oil lamps in a wooden case and had them hoisted up high enough to illuminate the statue from what he thought was the proper angle. But as Emerson reported in a letter to Margaret Fuller, the case caught on fire and crashed down with lamps melting and exploding and brilliant balls of light falling on the floor. They dragged the flaming wreckage of the wooden case outdoors where it drew together a rabble from all parts. Emerson, who had first met Greenough in Florence in 1833, called him a superior man, ardent and eloquent. Emerson thought Greenough's face was so handsome, and his body so well-formed, that he must have modeled his classical statues, including an Achilles, after himself. Despite the chaos, and perhaps due to the presence of so handsome a guide, Emerson spent several hours sitting on the floor entranced by the statue after the smoke cleared with half a dozen persons whose shadows were colossal on the wall, while Greenaw's shouts of higher, higher to the men holding the lamps reverberated up to the dome. Emerson thought the Washington was simple and grand, nobly draped below, and nobler nude above. You do not know how much joy you gave me by picking
0: this passage uh, because... It was such a problem to figure out how to talk about this sculptor, Horatio Greenow, because as I say in the end of the previous chapter, the little on-ramp to this chapter, he is the first American citizen to make artwork, to make a public monument for the U.S. Capitol, and he sets the standard for the next hundred plus years. So it's really important to understand what he was trying to do, how he was representing power in America to understand what everybody else did after him. And I could have just said that as the first chapter and then started, you know, Green, was born in Boston to a wealthy family, blah, 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 blah. Um, but that's really asking a lot of the reader to trust that you are going to arrive at an interesting point. You've, you've promised you will, but there's a difference between telling and showing. So I wanted to... Find a way of starting the chapter that showed how interesting and important and influential Greenow was. And I found this incident uh, where I didn't have to say he was an important sculptor because you can think, oh, he's being let into the Capitol building at night with a bunch of flammable material. He must be someone who's trusted by the authorities. I don't have to say he was very interesting. I can show. Um, Emerson, basically fanboying about him. And then it it gives, I think, a promise to the reader that this whole chapter is going to be written in a way that will be interesting to read, even if you don't care about the intellectual point that I'm making. I am especially happy that you like this, this opening, because everything i read about green i was so boringly written <laughs> the the only biography of him is from the mid 60s it's very staid he is such a weird person but this weirdness was covered over in all of this like academic spackle of discussing the logistics of transportation of marble from italy whatever whatever so this Incident of uh, the Emersonian fireballs um, wasn't even in the biography that was written in the 60s. Uh, the scholar who wrote that left it out. Uh, I only found it in a, an earlier essay she had published about the relationship between Emerson and, and Greedow and quoted these letters. And then I don't know what her thought process was. Maybe that it was more about Emerson than greenhouse, So she just left it out of the biography afterwards. And I'm like, this is the best thing. This is the weirdest thing. And I think finding the weird, finding the strange in historical details is very important because it's unsettling and intriguing to readers. And when you arrive at a place where you're like, I have no idea what's going on, that's when your mind is opened to being convinced of, of other ideas, of other truths. So I'm very happy uh, that this beginning of the chapter worked out to be intriguing and strange.
1: I mean, as I, as I mentioned, part of what I love about this, too, is that it's just so funny. I mean, this could almost be a sort of sitcom episode, you know, with this, this fire. And then it ends with Emerson after the fire sort of calmly <laughs> beholding the statue. And so much of your writing, really despite being about serious topics, is often quite funny um, and very enjoyable to read. Do you write funny naturally? Is that something that you work to incorporate into your writing? I'm very sarcastic naturally.
0: So whenever I am telling people about what I found in my research, I am reveling in the the weirdness of it. I find it deeply hilarious. And I hesitated for a long time to put these to to bring out the humor in my actual writing because i thought well these are serious subjects you need to be serious but with monuments especially i think that they wield seriousness as a weapon they are trying to be intimidating they're trying to deflect attention by being boring and and making you think that all of the questions have been settled so I think that in this book, humor operates as a tool to show the ridiculousnesses of monuments. They aren't something we all need to be afraid of or afraid of thinking about or modifying because they're actually just made by weirdo humans the same way as we're <laughs> weirdo. So I think humor is a good way of, of pulling back the curtain to show the fallibility of of what goes into the making of something that seems so divinely ordained.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. I also firmly believe that historians should just embrace humor more in terms of even just connecting with readers. You know, we we respond to humor. One thing that I really admire about this book is how seamlessly you really blend the historical archive and then really contemporary reporting. And I I saw that you tweeted the other day talking about sort of the The both terrifying and exhilarating nature of getting to interview people rather than writing about just long dead figures. How do you blend those things together? How do you incorporate that in your writing? I think that's something that comes pretty naturally to me
0: that I always want to know the long histories of things. And it's important to, when you are looking for projects, when you're thinking about what you want to write, to think about what are the questions that I'm asking that nobody is asking. Because if for, for years, I would think, oh, this just must be a stupid question uh, <laughs> if no one is bothering to answer it. But it's not that it's a stupid question. It's a, your opportunity. Those are the, the, the magic eye transformations that you are able to see and not a whole lot of other people are into. So when there are all these news articles in the summer of 2020 about monuments coming down, I... Wanted to know, well, why did they go up? Why there? Why that person? Why that material? And those questions weren't being answered. And the debate was rather almost always about the character of the person represented in a monument rather than the monument as monument. And after enough articles where people weren't asking that, I thought, oh, I guess I, I can do that. And then when I wrote, you have to blend together the the past and the present. And my initial temptation was just to think, okay, I'll I'll use, you know, other people's interviews, quotes in, in newspapers about the present. And that'll be enough. I don't actually have to talk to people, right? Wrong. Because again, the questions that I wanted to ask weren't the questions that were being asked. So I just had to talk to people myself. Uh, which was very scary uh, to do. But then I realized after the first interview that it wasn't that I was just coming to someone, an activist or or a politician who made the decision to take down a monument or a curator who'd made the decision to display it. It wasn't that I was just coming to uh, extract information from them with no reward offered for their their time and information. Because I had done all of this research on the the historical aspects of the uh, erection of monuments, I was able to offer to them things that they didn't know. So it became much more of a collaborative process and that felt very rewarding and led to much more interesting outcomes. It did mean that I took, it felt like a little bit of a high wire act of preparing extensively for an interview Before, sometimes I was even sure I could get that interview, that the person would talk to me. Or, you know, maybe they wouldn't want to chat, or they would give bad quotes or whatever. But it it worked out, fortunately. And in part, I was able to turn myself into a good interviewer because I've been interviewed so often. So I learned how the sausage was made from being a part of the sausage.
1: I'd like to turn and ask a little bit about sort of your inspiration and and where you've drawn from as a writer.
0: It took me a surprisingly long time to think about what I could write in terms of what I enjoyed reading. Mm. So I have never been the type of person to sit down with an academic journal and just flip through for fun. I love to read narrative nonfiction, creative nonfiction. And yeah, it took way too long for me to think, oh wait, I could uh, write something like that as well. Uh, I particularly love uh, writers who are good at explaining complex ideas that I have never thought about before, especially from the sciences in a narrative way and even in a funny way. So I have read every book written by Mary Roach, uh, sometimes multiple times, and she is so good at at being personable, at showing the human sides of things, at being laugh out loud, funny, but also taking very complex ideas and showing the the impact of these ideas in the world. Uh, I also really like Michael Lewis. I'm not a financial person, but somehow he can uh, take these ideas and explain them to me in a way where I'm, like, rooting for people and <laughs> uh, understand the, the tax implications of mortgage, derivative payment, whatever. And uh, Oliver Sacks, too. One of my very favorite books is uh, his his memoir, Uncle Tugston, where he combines meditations, almost, I would say, on, on chemistry and science with a memoir. So this is something that I haven't really done so much in a couple of shorter pieces, yes, but brought myself in as a character. But maybe I will, I, no, I, this is uh, the point of my, my next book is, is doing that. So fingers crossed, I can have any sort of success.
1: Well, I was gonna ask you before I let you go, would, would you mind talking about what you're working on next? Sure. So I just signed a contract with Norton to write my
0: third book which is uh, tentatively titled The Perfect Fake. I have long wanted to write about forgery because, again, I see the problem. I see the questions. But what had kept me from doing so for years was I didn't see the structure. How do you put together a book about art forgery that isn't just a bunch of little anecdotes strung together until I had the idea that, oh, I can... Be the uniting thread. I can try and make a perfect art forgery, and my successes and failures and pratfalls will be the the connecting tissue that will allow me to bring in stories of, of forgers, of the scientists who are authenticating, the scholars who are studying, the activists who are thinking about the role of uh, the the way that forgeries can aid in the market for illicit looted and stolen antiquities. And because I uh, think that the best form of humor is making fun of myself, I hope this
1: will be <laughs> a funny book as well. That sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me today and for being willing to share some about your writing process. It's been really great. Thank you. And thank you for this podcast, which is fantastic. Thanks again to Dr. Aaron Thompson for joining me for this episode of Drafting the Past. You can find links and notes about our conversation at draftingthepast.com, and you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at DraftingThePast. If you've been enjoying the show and you have a minute, a great way you can support my work is to leave a review on your favorite podcasting app. That'll help other people find the show. Thanks for listening, and happy writing.